This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host for this week, Paul Jaisley, filling in for our regular intrepid host, Mike Rappin, who's not here this week, but in lieu of him, you have me and two of my favorite people to talk about comics with. Uh, I just realized I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Tia, so say hello and maybe uh, give us your last name correctly hi (laughs) it's okay it's okay it's pronounced vasilio great Uh, how are you doing tia well i'm okay i actually am a little under the weather so i'll try not to sniffle or cough too much into the mic today wonderful we appreciate the effort uh and also joining us of course the wonderful nick white how you doing nick pretty good uh and it's pronounced white oh okay sorry i'll I'll make it i thought it was pronounced white (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes when I really want to make a scene, I'll tell people it's spelled like the color, as if anyone's going to go ahead and spell it like W-H-Y-T-E, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> sort of like on that old British PBS show where the lady says, uh, it's bouquet in its bucket. Anyway, no Oh, one, the bucket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Holy cow. I do. <laughs> I was yeah. like, isn't that keeping, keeping up, up appearances? appearances? Oh, man. Yep. <laughs> And as someone that watched a lot of PBS as a kid, uh, I'm definitely familiar with some obscure British sitcoms. So Same. But we're not same. here to talk so, about that. Yeah. No. <laughs> we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about comics. Uh, so I'll ask the question that Mike usually asks at the top of each show. How have you guys been? How have comics been? We'll start with Tia. How are you and how are comics? I'm hanging in there. I'm powering through for comics. And uh, <laughs> I have been laying around reading to try and make myself feel better so i have a few to talk about today the first is batwoman number one which i said last week i was looking forward to and it was great it was awesome i also read the wild storm number one this is um some warren ellis goodness with john davis hunt and ivan uh, placentia doing colors and basically i think i'm going to trade weight this uh because I feel like it's the kind of story that you're gonna you you want to binge read. It's I don't have the patience to wait for it to come out in single issues. So I'm gonna trade waiting. Warren Ellis surprise. Hey, surprise everyone. <laughs> hey, see Mike. See Mike. No one wants to read these books in singles. It really just isn't. It's not. I want. I just want to sit down for like hours and you know bask in the conspiracy theoriness of it all. Right. I really did like the character design for that book. I saw some of the preview pages, and it it, it looks really sharp. Even the the color design looks fantastic, too. The art and colors are gorgeous, and I'm really looking forward also to the other titles in the... This is like a pop-up imprint for DC that Warren Mm -hmm. Ellis is curating, sort of similar to Gerard Way curating the the Young Animal imprint. So there's going to be a few other books in the mix, and... I understand it's curated with new readers in mind, and Hmm. (laughs) so you all should get on this because it's great. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty curious uh, about this. The little backups that they've been running in DC books for the past few weeks kind of piqued my interest, and I've never read a ton of Warren Ellis, so I think something like this that's designed for new readers would be ideal, but something about Wildstorm and those characters have that early image taint to me. I remember being a kid and just seeing the Jim Lee art and being like, yeah, that's not really for me at all. So it still has that weird personal taint on a lot of that property for me. But I'm sure it's completely different now and uh, they've been revamped 
in a way. I feel that way about so many books, so I totally understand <laughs> what you're talking about. Sure. And yeah, I would... Paul- s- Go ahead, Nick. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, Paul, I <laughs> I totally agree. Wildstorm is like... It seems like it's sort of awoke out of DC's attempt to sort of create their own like spawn and whatnot. Does that does that seem right to you? It's no, me because very much like these a, are the these are the characters that Jim Lee created for Image. So when Jim Lee went to DC, he was able to bring this his imprint Wildstorm imprint with him. So there are characters that are created for Image by G, by Jim oh, Lee. So that they've basically God. incorporated the Wildstorm uh, like intellectual properties into dc now that jim lee's you know higher up in dc so oh i never knew it made the transfer okay i mm-hmm. whenever i saw yeah. wildstorm stuff i was like why does this look like it belongs with like a rob liefeld mid 90s image book um yeah exactly and because it did at one point <laughs> wow that's weird <laughs> yeah. the, the more you know and uh yeah. no I, uh, I i i'm really optimistic they put ellis on this book i think it's a really good way to hedge their bets by using like a sub imprint because I don't know if you remember, but the new 52 attempted to fold Wildstorm into like mainline continuity and virtually every single Wildstorm book was terrible and died. Cause who wants to read Grifter? No one wants to read Grifter. <laughs> <laughs> one more book that I read. It actually is a, a reprint. I think uh, originally came out in the early two thousands scooter girl by China Clugson Flores and um, Image is, is republishing it, or at least it, it another version of it came out recently. And uh, it, this book really brought out a lot of nostalgia for me because it takes place in the sort of Southern California, like mod scooter scene. And I had a lot of friends who were deep into that i wow yeah i like knew so many of the archetypes that you see in this book (laughs) that's quite a niche it really (laughs) is um i i had a lot of fun reading it and thinking about how my friends from back in the day you know would have wished that they had made this comic about their own lives it kind of reminds me in in tone and in the story plot of of old movies where they're like kind of zany and also super sexist in a really gross way, but you still kind of like it somehow, even though the characters are horrible to each other yeah. and like it just basically is structured around like the very problematic premise of like, you know, perfect guy is a womanizer because women are stupid and then a woman a, a perfect woman who's too smart to fall for his shit um makes like pushes him off of his game and then he spends half the book trying to win her over and then when that's unsuccessful the other half trying to extract revenge on her in horrible ways <laughs> and then they somehow end up together because love i don't know um <laughs> he- sounds like a really has anyone done this movie before because i'm i'm hearing this and i'm like tell me more this is riveting <laughs> like stuff literally uh, every movie from like the <laughs> 1950s and 60s uh you know so don't like look too hard at it for that uh but it's charming and kind of throwing back to the topic of the podcast last week with the um 
making playlists or listening to music while you read, there is a soundtrack kind of built in to this. And in certain establishing shots, it'll say at the bottom what song is playing. And so you can play along, you know, because music is really integral in in like that whole mod scooter culture. So Mm -hmm. I was going to I have to admit, once I saw that on your um, on the doc list for this episode, I was like, well, first off, my my brain went like, okay, Nick, you need to take the words of skater, skater boy, and change it to scooter girl because <laughs> this is your brain telling you what to do, and for no other reason, you need to do this and put the music to it. So I first did that, uh, and then I looked at the artwork, and I was like, this reminds me a lot of Mike Allred, kind of, with some of the line work, oh. some of the heavy line work. Um, at least to me, it, it looked like Allred, so... That was that was kind of interesting. After I saw that, I was like, I need to see what the hell this book is. Because with a title like <laughs> Scooter Girl, I thought it was like just being so plain and declarative. I was like, is Tia reading some like manga stuff? Because like it definitely veers it more like toward the name of a manga book. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely veers more toward an aesthetic that I it is not my my favorite. Sure. But the mm-hmm. uh, but but you couldn't do a more painterly style with mods like it just doesn't work, you know. So right. it kind of is fitting for the characters and the setting, and you know, like nostalgia sometimes w- will overcome those preferences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has a way of doing that. I've noticed, <laughs> uh, Nick. What did you read this week that you want to tell us all about? A few things. Uh, The first one is that Savage from Valiant finally came to an end. Uh, This is about the third miniseries that Valiant has done in the past half year or so. Um, It's been a pretty interesting and creative approach um, for Valiant in that um, ever since they rebooted in 2012, they've had a large amount of original material and books and characters and creations from the 90s that they've able they've been able to go back to and reinvent or and sometimes not so much reinvent but they've also taken the initiative on the side of that to say we need to do some new content we need to create some new characters um how do we do this in a way that sort of hedges our bets and if things turn out to not be great or we can't totally bank it on nostalgia or we can't rely on a um you know sort of reader base or a user base that's going to show up how do we do that? And so they've been using these mini-series to sort of hedge their bets, and it's worked out really well. Um, Divinity is now on Divinity 3, so clearly that's working just fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Britannia, um, with the very last issue of Britannia, if you know Latin, the very last issue said, um, uh, what's his name, Antonius Axia will return um, l- later this year, I think was what it was. So if you knew Latin, uh, take that, people who told me that was a useless zero-hour class and suck <laughs> it. So I, yeah, that was, a, I was like, Latin, it's helping. Uh, zero so hour, that, Jesus Christ, what time in the yeah, morning does that start? <laughs> it was early, but on the flip side, it made it so that I didn't have to take uh, a language class during my normal school time which allowed me to do an independent it's <laughs> nick white will thoroughly go through his high school academic schedule uh <laughs> in the extended notes of this podcast um <laughs> okay <laughs> um but uh i really enjoyed it uh it did end the way i thought it ended in a way that attempts to put this character into the mainstream universe he does find his way off the island 
the real question is where the heck does this book go now um because minor spoilers the bad guy is dead and his parents have been avenged and so now it's just a I'm sorry minor spoilers yeah yeah minor spoilers <laughs> he did avenge the people he said he was going to avenge surprise uh and uh now he's just a feral teenager in New York City. So I, I think it's New York. It looks like downtown Times Square. So where does this book go? I have no idea. But last page says next year or later this year, Savage will return. So hmm. I have no idea what they're going to do with this character. Um, <laughs> uh, very interested in that regard. Um, Paul, you'll be happy to know I read Dark Corridor. I sat down, read the oh, whole thing in great. one sitting. Um, nice. It just flowed. It just really, really, really mm-hmm. flowed. Uh, and I hate to say that it was very Tarantino-esque, because Tarantino doesn't own film noir, okay? Tarantino right. doesn't own um, this sort of narrative idea that he's adapted in his own right. But I think the one thing Tommaso did really, really well is that, much like a Tarantino film, there's sort of this handoff between different protagonists throughout throughout the story. Uh, yep. And it's always really hard to do the handoff properly because when you hand off to a character that people don't know at all, then they start struggling to try to piece it all together. And when you hand it off mm-hmm. to someone everybody already knows, then there's sort of a complacency that sets in. So he's always handing it off to characters that were sort of peripheral bit players in other stories. And now you're like, okay, I want to know more about this person, but I also don't know that much to begin with. And so I thought it was handled yeah. really, really well. The other weird thing, and I'm sure Tia can probably speak to this from an artistic standpoint more than than I could, but the way in which the very sort of cartoony um, art style depicted (laughs) some pretty graphic violence, um, Mm -hmm. you know, was obviously much more shocking to me than than a lot of the other, (laughs) um, I don't know, bloodshot violence that I've that I've seen. Almost as if like Tomasa was sort of creating an act of violence against his own style in a way mm-hmm. like like his style was obviously meant more for i don't know if you want to say it like newspaper strips or um yeah an independent sort of daniel Klaus-esque sort of thing um yeah but here it is doing hard-boiled violence you know yeah it, I, I i like it makes the violence feel a little bit more like crude I don't yeah. know, it just has a crudeness to it. Although the artwork is very like polished, he's a very good cartoonist, so I'm not saying yes. it's like poorly drawn. Oh no, just, no, no. He's a very the violence good feels very like yeah, it's very visceral and like raw and yeah, it just it jumps right out because it's so different from what you'd think his aesthetic would be. Same thing with his current book, She Wolf. It's very similar. It's just so it feels raw because of that. The disparity between the sort of cartooniness um of his drawing and the actual violence it's portraying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that book. Um, color work is vastly underrated too. And I, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was a fun story. Uh, do, do you think if I liked that, I would like She-Wolf or thematically or tonally, is it a very different book, even if the aesthetic remains the same? I, yeah, I think She-Wolf in terms of a narrative is a lot looser. It doesn't okay. quite have the sort of through line that Dark Quarter had. It feels just more like... Like, he's just riffing on ideas as the book goes along. It doesn't have, like, a straightforward story, so to speak. Okay. But it, it looks lovely. And it's cool that in She-Wolf, he plays with a lot more muted color tone or color palette. Sure. Instead of being, like, the bright, garish colors of Dark Corridor. So it'd be, it'd be worth maybe looking at a few issues to see. But I don't think, narratively, it'd be the same as Dark Corridor for you. Okay. 
Tia, have you read anything by Rich Tomaso? I have paged through She-Wolf, but I wasn't taken enough with it to really dig into mm. it. Okay. What else here? Uh, I read The Revisionist. This is Nick White's first Aftershock book, people. Um, it was going to happen eventually, so uh, here we are. Uh, I decided to um, be a rebel and not go with insects or go with um, animosity because everyone talks about those. And I was like, you can't tell me what to do, Mom. Uh, and uh, so here I am with uh, The Revisionist, which is from Frank Barbary, perhaps best known for Five Ghosts, which is a great image book. And Gary Brown, who is known for, uh, well, first off, drawing a ton of um, Brian Wood's stuff in general. But he's also totally killing it on Black Road right now, which I guess is also Brian Wood, so I guess point made. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's just a time travel narrative. Uh, you have this guy who's in prison. We don't know what for yet, because if you're in prison, you, you have to keep it a secret what they're in for and, you know, until the last minute. And then it's, you know, a, you know, a shocker, I guess. Um, but he's now a revisionist, which means he has to fix time travel inconsistencies. But of course, there's the question of, is he really fixing, um, you know, time or is he actually working at the behest of someone who's the one who's trying to change it anyway? Um, but, uh, the guy who's trying to change it, uh, is his dad, apparently, who, uh, appears to him in the form of a hologram and he looks like Zordon from 1990s Power Rangers. So <laughs> it's a win. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to quick say one, one quick thing about Aftershock. And I think this is sort of what's keeping me from really getting interested and it is frustrating and I wish they would fix this. Um, if you look at a lot of Aftershock books, they've really had problems hitting their deadlines, honestly. Um, God, I have this somewhere here. Yeah, like uh, um, Republic, is it Replica? Replicants? I forget. Um, their last issue was in April of 16. No, hasn't returned to that yet. Super Zero, last issue in July of 16. No one's returned to that yet. Other books like Strayer, sorry, not Strayer, but Alters and Captain Kid, they've had spotty schedules. Like, they'll show up and have a book one month, and then they'll not show up for three months and then have a book in one month. And I I don't know what's going on over there. But um, honestly, uh, I would be way more interested if they could keep a consistent um, shipping schedule. And I don't know if they're just not throwing enough money around or if it's just a fact that they made a real genuine effort to bring in some pretty big names and these really big names have other things they're doing. I mean, when you get Palmiotti and Amanda Connor and Warren Ellis, uh, they've got other stuff. So, um, but that's what I read other than I got a DC comic in my cereal box a few days ago and, <laughs> <laughs> and I read that and, uh, it was surprisingly not bad. Mr. Mixelpick shows up and, uh, creates horror by taking a statue or a bust of the justice league and bringing it to life. And it nearly kills the justice league. And the only way to defeat Mixelpick is with, um, Batmite, another character from the fifth dimension. So, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What cereal were you eating? And I might have to go grab a box to see if <laughs> yeah. I can get my hands on this. Yeah, it's a uh, it's Lucky Charms. <laughs> you can't miss it because they literally have Lucky on the front cover, dressed as a Green Lantern. <laughs> Fantastic. I wonder if that's canon. Hopefully, it is. So. Good God. Uh, given given the tr the past track record of people the Green Lanterns have hired, it would not shock. Shock me. You do not need a very robust CV to sign up. What about what about you, Paul? Uh, well, I read 
Sheriff of Babylon, the first volume in trade. Um, so that fulfills our obliga- uh, obligatory Tom King mention for this week. Yep. No, I, I really, really enjoyed this. One of those books I'd picked up a while ago and just finally got around to reading. It's just as good as you've heard. A great sort of, you know, open-eyed, pulls-no-punches look at on the ground in Iraq. Um, feels very sort of true to life. And Mitch Jaren's, I think it's Mitch uh, Garrod's. J- uh, his I always is, say yeah, it wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Mitch. Uh, the artwork is fantastic, though. It's a lovely, lovely book. I have to track down volume two as soon as I can. Uh, great stuff. Uh, I also read Vampirella number zero, which uh, was only a quarter at my local comic shop. So I, I did grab that. that off the rack. Yeah. Um, Vampirella is one of those characters that I know nothing about. And so this was kind of a great introduction to the character. It's written by Paul Cornell, who's one of those guys whose work I always like, but I don't really follow him. But if I see that he's on a book I'm curious about, I'll check it out kind of thing because it's he's always solid. And the artwork is by Jimmy Broxton, who worked with Cornell on the Knight and Squire miniseries for DC a few years ago. Huh. And I think Broxton did a couple issues of the Saucer Country series that Cornell did for Vertigo. So they've worked together a lot. Okay. Uh, it's worth a quarter. It's worth a quarter. It's a pretty fun book, um, and I like that Broxton's artwork seems to mimic the the drawing style of like those seventies horror comics, like eerie or creepy. That seems to fit Vampirella's like you know aesthetic really well. So I don't know if it's a book I'll necessarily follow up on, but I gambled a quarter and I enjoyed this at least. <laughs> Does this mean that the ridiculous uh, bikini is back? <laughs> No, so she doesn't wear it in this issue, and that's what's kind of funny. Is like I'm reading this, I'm like that's kind of the only thing I know about Vampirella, and kind of the, the only thing anyone knows kind of, about Vampirella, <laughs> <laughs> right? And they're kind of distancing themselves from that. It does feel like a horror comic in the way it's presented, and then like oh, that was a pretty solid you know, story. At the end of the issue, she Vampirella is like awoken from her sleep, and she just puts on these clothes that she finds. So it's not like her traditional outfit; it's like normal clothes nice uh that actually cover her skin right <laughs> but then like but then you finish the story and then you see like the advertisements for the old vampire collections and you're like oh really that's the same character <laughs> right no. oh no. god so you know? bad um <laughs> like literally yeah. a front wedgie <laughs> yeah the logistics of her costume are uh, one maybe for another another episode i'm just um, imagining you reading that and you're just flipping to that final page and you're like oh you're here too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. Oops. <laughs> I didn't make it to my shop this week, so I had to rely on some old stuff I'd collected and accumulated over the uh, past few months to read. Some of them were comics I found in the dollar bin at my comic shop over the past few months, and uh, that's one of my very favorite things, is just yeah. digging through the dollar bin, finding random DC comics from the 80s, and just either they're good or they're not. At least they're fun to read. So I read... Wild Dog, the original four-issue miniseries by Max Collins and Terry Beattie on art, and the Wild Dog special number one from 1989. So Wild Dog... Is he the guy with the hockey gear? He's the guy in an Uzi, right? Hockey gear in an Uzi. It's the greatest thing. It's like if if the Punisher was created by DC in the mid-80s. So it's like a really corny version of the Punisher. He's got... Camo cargo pants, uh, like a hockey jersey with a picture of a smiling, laughing dog on it, oh my God. and a hockey mask, and he carries an Uzi. So dumb. Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's wonderfully stupid. He's you actually know he's an Arrow? Uh, yeah, because I've seen pictures of... I don't watch Arrow, but I saw that he's in it, and he's also in Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye. 
So that's, I was like, oh, Wild Dog's kind of having a resurgence. So I was glad I found these old issues that I bought a while back to read. The thing is, the Wild Dog miniseries is really good because really? The, the gimmick the gimmick is it takes place in Davenport, Iowa, which is like <laughs> the weirdest place for a superhero story to take place. And there's like a group of um, like reactionary terrorists that are terrorizing Davenport, Iowa. And every time they try to stage an attack, they're thwarted by Wild Dog. But you don't know who Wild Dog is, and neither do the police. And there's like a reporter who's investigating this, investigating all these incidences, and she's narrowed it down to four people. So the the four issue miniseries is like you're trying to figure out which of these four people is Wild Dog, and they Ooh. all deny it. So it's like a really cool like kind of a twist for a little miniseries. And then uh, the Wild Dog special that came out a few years later is just another like he takes on the mob type story. So yeah, they're not the greatest comics ever read, but yeah, if you come across these in the dollar bin or they're on sale on Comicsology or something, they're well worth checking out just so you can say you've read wild dog. Who, uh, who wrote that? The, the first thing you uh, mentioned, do you? Yeah. Max Collins, Max Collins, Max okay. Collins wrote it. And then Terry Beatty on pencils. I think the miniseries was inked by Dick Giordano. Okay. So, you know, pretty solid eighties DC, uh, creative team. Speaking of which I also read, Batman and the Outsiders annual number one from 1984. I saw this in a dollar bin and I had to buy it. The cover features the titular Outsiders, uh, Black Lightning, Katana, Geoforce, Halo, and Metamorpho the Element Man standing in front of a flaming American flag. And the title, the, the cover text says, it's 1984. Do you know where your freedoes are? It's oh like, well, man! It's 2017, and I'm not sure where they are right now. So oh. maybe there'll be some answers in this book. Oh snap! Paul. This was <laughs> this was written by Mike Barr. Uh, multiple pencils on it, some like four different pencilers, but they're all inked by Jim Aparo, which is like the inverse. Normally, it's one penciler with like four dink- different inkers. But um, this is about a right wing politician who launches a satellite into space called Project Orwell. Project what? Orwell, as or- in George. As <laughs> okay. In, <laughs> and is designed to spy on every American citizen. And the outsiders are trying to stop him from doing that. So he puts together his own superpowered team called the force of July to fight the outsiders. Uh, it's this. ridiculous and over the top and, but it's oddly prescient in a weird way. So it's pretty, pretty fun to read both this and wild dog uh, in the year 2017. It's just, it's kind of a, it's a mind freak to put it that one way. Yeah. Wow, jeez, yeah, no kidding. Uh, I was gonna say nobody, n- nobody gets to spy on Batman. Batman gets to spy on everybody. Okay, <laughs> that's how it works. No one gets to out surveil so, Batman. <laughs> I, I should mention at one point they're testing out the capabilities of the Project Orwell satellite, uh-huh. which allows, which basically like allows you to. It, they call it Omnicast, so it's like it's broadcasting a television signal but it's also recording at the same time so it's like it's spying it through people through their television oh so it's like, oh we gotta test this out like oh here we go let's check out this family in grand rapids michigan and then it cuts to like a family watching tv in grand rapids right in my very hometown yeah so it's kind of a little funny little touch but i want to turn your tv against the wall at the end of the night there paul <laughs> exactly definitely definitely project orwell seems like a very real thing at this point so that's oddly weird considering you know when people were saying a year or two ago that like smart um smart tvs were were listening in on on people <laughs> yeah mike barr the, and jim aparo they were onto something they had it all figured out way back in 84 so no kidding <laughs> that's what i read this week 
And as far as comic books for next week, well, they come out on, which I imagine is Two-Face's favorite day, February 22nd. If only it was a Tuesday, it'd, be, it'd fit perfectly with uh, Two-Face. He'd probably be rob- robbing the uh, Second American Bank or something on that day. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, but I digress. Uh, Wednesday, February 22nd, new comics will be out, and we'll be reading some of them. Tia, what are you looking forward to? I am so excited about The Power of the Dark Crystal, which Cy Sprayer is writing, and it's the official sequel to The Dark Crystal. And it oh, sounds like the movie, the freaking movie. awesome. Wow. Basically, uh, Jen and Kira have been ruling the land of Thra, and they... Um, are sort of becoming kind they they don't have the same sort of sensitivity to the the people and land that they had from the movie they are sort of becoming distant and cold and so uh, there's this new race that we learn about in the comics called firelings and they live deep in the planet at its core and apparently they're based off of official character sketches so that's neat hmm. and then the one of the firelings is trying to basically steal a shard of the dark crystal again, uh, like like fracture it again. So um, I'm guess it says in the solicit that there will be Skeksis and mystics, and in order for that to happen, and then the dark crystal does need to shatter. So I'm I guess um, that's going to happen, and hmm. yeah. I have to confess, I haven't seen the Dark Crystal in about twenty-five years. At, at well, least, so it's apparently <laughs> I've got you beat, Paul. I haven't seen it. Oh, n- oh. my God, you guys! Um, Sorry, it's apparently the thirty-fifth anniversary. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I had no idea it was that old, but it's such a good movie. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a the Jim Henson uh, production, and it's like a weird sort of you know sword and sorcery type story with these they're not Muppets they're like scary Muppets in a weird way right yeah yeah wasn't this sort of like a huge clunker for him was it yeah I I think it was kind of a commercial flop if I remember right I thought Labyrinth did okay but like I think if I recall Dark Crystal was like super ambitious and the problem was that it just didn't um deliver again this is nick white talking about box office reception on a movie he hasn't seen what's new Uh, (laughs) sorry i mean i don't think that any movie with muppets is or puppets i i don't know if they're all muppets i'm not sure of the (laughs) jim henson terminology but basically what i'm saying is i'm sure david bowie's package really gives you a bump in box office sales Yeah, sure. There's no David Bowie in The Dark Crystal. What kind of magic spell do you use to get this movie to make money? Sorry. (laughs) I haven't seen that movie either. I just know that. You haven't seen Mm. Labyrinth either? No. Oh my God. It's again, it's one of those weird things where if you just hang out with, again, I'm sure we all know this, like geeks hang out with geeks and you learn things and whatnot and you don't even, haven't even seen the source material. You know, it's simulacrum. it's a postmodern world. Yeah, yeah. That's simulacra and simulation, everybody. You know, <laughs> that's Baudrillard, bitches. <laughs> and episode title. <laughs> there we go. Oh man, that was a great read. <laughs> what are you looking forward it's- to reading, Nick? Oh man, uh, for me, it's a new image number one. 
It is a Greg Rucka book, and it is called The Old Guard. Uh, it's uh, with Rucka writing, obviously, and uh, Leandro Fernando on art, who I'm not really familiar with some of his stuff. He uh, did Punisher Max with... Well, I guess I don't remember, and he did a Vertigo miniseries called The Names with Milligan, I think in 14. Um, I think he also drew that, uh, what was that book everybody got all upset about? Also, also Vertigo miniseries, also with Milligan. Um, it was the one where the image was on the San Diego Comic-Con passes or whatever, and people were like, not really down with this. Oh, no, no, um, no. It was for, I think, Emerald City Comic Con. Are you talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, the yeah, discipline, yeah. which is yeah, 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 complete yeah, yeah. garbage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, hmm. um, anyway, he's he's uh, drawn things that are a little more controversial than others, um, but I suppose mm-hmm. that's true of uh, other pencilers, too. Um, uh, that being said, uh, the book deals with an immortal band of soldiers led by, uh, and here we go, Nick's going to butcher names, uh, Andromach of Scythia. Probably um, Andromache. Andromache, Andromache. Uh, and this uh, this female character is now in charge of a bunch of mercenaries who basically work for whoever can hire them. Um, but they're also trying to keep their secret that like they've been alive forever, which of course in the modern day and age is a little more difficult to do than not. So again, another book that I really don't know what sort of trajectory it could have. You know, whenever you read summaries like this, you think, or at least I think in my head, like, how do you turn this into like 12 issues? How do you turn this into 18 issues? Um, Mm -hmm. And I know Rucka's a smart enough guy that it's not just going to be these people going on missions for people and, you know, killing people and then getting paid and then being like, hey, we've got money and we're immortal. Isn't that great? Ha ha ha. There's going to be some interesting overarching plot here that I'm very curious to see what that turns out to be. But the art looks good, and it's Rucka, who hasn't had a clunker, at least in recent years. So I'm, I'm, I'm game. What about you, Paul? What's, what's your pick? Uh, probably to the surprise of no one, my pick this week is Commandy Challenge number two, uh, written by Peter Tomasi. Yay. Art by Neil Adams. Not yay. <laughs> Neil Adams, boy, um, I, I love the stuff he did in the 70s. I think he, he's just as important as far as creating contemporary superhero comics as Jack Kirby mm-hmm, in yeah. terms of just his visual style. I think if you're going to do one in number, number one and two in terms of who, what do superhero comics look and feel like, yeah. Kirby and Adams are the two guys. Um, the emphasis he but, brought to studying anatomy was, yeah, super important. Exactly. Exactly. So you can't diminish him. What's interesting is when he does Kirby, because their styles could not be more different yes, in a way. Yes. You know, Kirby's all abstraction and this weird sort of uh, primitivism in his artwork, and Adams is very refined, lots of detail. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how how he handles this material. Luckily, he has a writer with him to sort of you know control his uh, his tendencies, I guess. So you have Peter Tomasi, who's always solid. Uh, I think we've mentioned him on the show before, just being like a sort of a workman, not mm-hmm. the never going to blow you away, but he always delivers a solid story, you know, just good, solid yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and this will kind of be the first time we see how this gimmick is going to pay off for this series. Again, the series was written, the first issue was written and then passed off to the next creative team. The creative teams weren't collaborating on an overall story. It's just like, here's the cliffhanger. How would you get out of it? Yeah. And then pass off to the next team. So we'll have to see how that plays out. What's cool is that, 
um, at the back of each issue in lieu of a letters page is going to have the creative team from the previous issue explain this is how we would have done it. And oh. so you can compare <laughs> how they would have solved the cliffhanger versus how the cliffhanger actually ends in the book itself. So, you know, I've, I've been excited for this Commandy Challenge. I enjoyed the first issue a lot. So I, I really want it to be something special and unique and also a fun, well-made comic book. So I'm putting my hopes in the second issue. We'll see if it delivers. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, do you think, um, logistically speaking, that it was just an issue of whenever the writer finished the script, that was just passed on? And obviously, I don't think there was any waiting on art or anything like that. Because otherwise, logistically, I don't know how you could be you know, passing scripts around so quickly and getting things done without taking like yeah, I, two and a half years or something. If Yeah, I have to imagine, I mean, they announced the community challenge like two years ago. So oh, they've been really? working on it for a long time. Okay. So, okay. Um, and I have to imagine that it really was, here's the script and then pass off to the next writer. Luckily you're dealing with a pre-existing property. So the character designs and the world mm-hmm. itself is already kind of fleshed yeah. out visually. So... Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting concept, and I'm glad that DC's kind of gambling on it. So, yeah, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. Of course, we here at the I Read Comic Books podcast love comic books. That's why we do the show, and that's what we're talking about today. But sometimes love can manifest itself in some peculiar ways, uh, and that's what we're here to talk about this episode. Uh, the madness or strange things that your comic book obsession has led you to do as a comic book reader. Uh, I'm not sure where this conversation is going to go, so maybe I'll just open up the floor and we can all sort of, you know, let some skeletons out of our closet and say, <laughs> uh, uh, I read comic, my name is Paul, I read comic books, and this is what it's led me to do. So uh, let me, uh, like I said, open up the floor and just see what you guys are willing to confess in front of the world today. Oh, boy. Uh, Tia? <laughs> I mean, you guys have heard about my Wiktiv collection, so there's that. <laughs> collection might be an understatement. Like, collection might not fully encompass how uh, comprehensive this is. Uh, I'm actually starting to have, like, a lot of anxiety about it because they're coming out with um, foreign language trades, and... Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there are three or four different languages that are starting to be printed, and... I sure. picked up a couple of the French ones, and I got a couple of the exclusive um, Paris Comic Con, I think it was, had like a variant, and I was able to do that because I had friends who were there, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at the Spanish language ones and Portuguese or whatever's coming out. I'm sure there's a German one. Like, I don't even know. I kind of am like... <laughs> I don't know if I can actually keep up with this because I think they're planning on having like nine trades when it's all said and done. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm currently sitting on five hardcovers of year one because they printed them in five different colors. Literally, that's the only <laughs> difference is that the covers are different colors and I have all five of them. So I just, I, I'm not sure if I've got the stamina to do that in multiple languages. Well, I mean, at least the benefit with that book is it being the mature content that it is, at least you know it's not going to get translated in certain countries. So at least there's a little bit of a barrier there. <laughs> I, there are certain places this won't show up. Yeah, Like what, which countries would, I feel like all of the major comic book markets are 
probably going to have it. And yeah, I mean, will they make a, I don't know. Well, some of the ones with more censorship constraints. I mean, I know there at least have been certain comics that have not um, made their way into certain, at least I think Middle Eastern countries where it's like, I don't think so, but uh, (laughs) I could be remembering that wrong. Um, Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, I... I mean, you better hope so for your sake. I mean... I think at this point, I maybe need to just give myself permission to only collect the English English language ones. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, each, if each trade comes out in, you know, half a dozen different languages and has variant covers of those trades, and there's going to be nine Mm -hmm. trades, I don't know where I'm going to put all these books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I mean, uh, I mean, you can always hope that maybe they won't be so prolific <laughs> in terms of the variants and in terms of the differences with the foreign versions, but I don't know if I would bank on that. It's already uh, happening. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. So this isn't just an attempt to own... So you're literally saying you want to own every iteration of this particular comic. Pretty much. It sounds like she's thinking twice about it right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, but yeah. So you're I saying mean, you yeah. wanted to. Like the, the problem was for the Paris Comic Con variant anyway, it was it was a new cover that Jamie McKelvey drew for that for that version and I'm like, you know, what a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it was the it was so good. It it was like a throwback to old like first arc fangirl laura which you can't just not buy that <laughs> took the yeah, words right out of point. my mouth yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read this book either tia i haven't seen your movies i haven't read this book i feel so just give me the just the you know the cliff notes of nick of you Tia's can't sit with us pop culture yeah <laughs> tia's pop culture like experience um yeah <laughs> but wow no that's a well that's always so frustrating when it's like oh there's a variant yeah yeah okay who drew it well the main artist god damn it <laughs> i know you have a variant problem yourself <laughs> oh my god oh geez it's so bad uh no i i definitely know the problem you're talking about i went in to pick up my pull a couple days ago uh and that included all-star batman number seven uh and I, I hate All-Star Batman because they have done such a great job picking out variant artists for this series. Um, Jock <laughs> has done covers. Declan Shalvey has done covers. Uh, it's so frustrating. At least with the Junior Junior run, I could be like, I don't want the Junior Junior cover. This mm-hmm. is real easy. At least I can cross that one off the list. Sorry, Junior Junior. Your interior art was actually um, not bad, and I was kind of impressed. But with this with this issue, uh, it was Tula Lote who uh, I think everyone knows uh, some of the most gorgeous covers, some of the best interior artwork out there, instantly identifiable, uh, and, and Franca Vila. And ugh, like at that point, you, you can't decide, or I should say I can't decide. So I was like, I bought both. Paul, <laughs> what, did, what did you pick? You know, I, here's the thing. I actually don't remember which cover I ended up with. Ugh. Whichever one was in my, my box, that's the one I stuck with. I don't have a really an issue with uh, variant covers. Um, I don't try to, you know, catch them all, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, Pokemon <laughs> reference. Paul, look at you. Yeah, look at that. It's something I have no idea about. I just have no <laughs> You're um, literally that gif right now. <laughs> hey, fellow kids. <laughs> exactly. That's no offense, but there's a lot of times on this podcast where I do uh, identify with that character. Um, anyway, 
The one exception would be if Jaime Hernandez does a variant cover for any book, I might end up with two copies of that particular issue. My biggest vice, though, as I've already alluded to earlier in the episode, is spending way too much time digging through dusty dollar bins at my comic shop or at conventions um, where I have amassed complete runs of books and then proceeded to never actually read them. So I have, in the depths of my long boxes, a complete run of the Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis Justice League series from the late 80s, which is a legendary take on the Justice League. And I have almost every issue that they've done. And I have yet to read a single one of them, but I have them stored away in this box somewhere in my apartment. And one day I swear I'll read that whole thing. But the idea that I just have the issues is somewhat more important to me than actually reading them. Um, it's funny that you bring up Jaime Hernandez, Paul, because that's something <laughs> talking about Jaime Hernandez variants makes me think of one of the other crazier things I've done uh, for for uh, my love and for other people's love of comics, which is that I have effectively been um, Mike Rappin's comic mule, I guess you could say. <laughs> or you've made him uh, yours. That too, that too. I, we can get to that as well. Um, but uh, especially when I was visiting uh, New York last uh, last spring, um, Mike's like, so here are the comics I picked up for you at Midtown, and that's another story. And I was like, great. And he's like, and here are the ones that go to Paul. And I'm like, wait, hold on. And then he's like, and here are the ones that go to Xander. And I'm like, wait, what's going on here? And he's like, and these are the other ones you need to distribute. And I'm like, okay... Which, which was easier said than done. Um, I am proud to say, or not proud to say, that uh, despite receiving those comics uh, late April 2016, I finally, finally delivered the last one eight days ago on Saturday. Uh, I finally <laughs> wow. delivered the last one to, to Xander after several... Um, meetups that didn't happen and then meetups where I forgot it. So Xander mm-hmm. is now the proud owner of... Um, what is the new Hulk? I think it's totally awesome. He's a, the proud owner of a totally totally awesome Hulk signed by Greg Pak, uh, number oh. one. <clears throat> so, so that is one of the crazier things I've done uh, is uh, <laughs> getting all of those to different people because, uh, as I think a lot of the people on this show know, and 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 Tia is the same. Uh, Mike goes to uh, Midtown Comics. Although Tia, that's not technically your LCS, right? It's it's a place you frequent, but it's not. Is your poll in, what, Massachusetts? No, I get stuff from Midtown because there's nothing... I mean, that's another crazy thing I've done for comics. The closest shop to me is an hour and a half away, so... Okay, okay. Considering how much time I put into commuting between New York and Massachusetts, the last thing I need is another commute just to a shop. Another commute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. That being said, Mike has access to all sorts of variants and and all sorts of weird or hard-to-find issues, and so... Um, frequently people make requests of Mike and then Mike finds a way to get him back to Michigan. Uh, so that's definitely one of the crazier things we've done. Um, as Tia hinted at, one of the crazier things for me uh, is that, and I, I don't know if, if, if Mike d- still does it because uh, he doesn't know anything else right now in this world, but uh, every week, usually between <laughs> Wednesday and Friday, I get a text message. Uh, it says, uh, you know, on my way to Midtown, be there in 10 minutes, on train right now, <laughs> what you need. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, if I was more prepared or a smart individual, I would have this 
uh, actually ready. Um, but every time it turns into this sheer panic of me being like, Where, where's my phone? Where's, where's, where's the computer? Where's the internet? I need to get on it right now, right now. And then it's me pulling up my poll, and then it's me pulling up my cover request thing to my shop to figure out what covers I had requested from them, and then me cross-referencing that with uh, Valiant's variant database and looking at the covers, and I'm like, actually, I need this one, and I kind of want that one. And so then it's Mike going through the shop and taking pictures of things and sending them back to me and me being like, nope, that's not it. That's not it. Come on, Mike. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I feel bad for him, but like I said, I, maybe he just does it at this point because he doesn't uh, know anything else, but I I thoroughly appreciate it. And, and, and certainly um, uh, it's allowed me to get my hands on a couple variants that either would be hard to find around here or um, would be subject to a markup being, you know, going to lower right. yield shops. So, no, I just think Mike is enabling your your strains and yeah. sessions, Nick. I yeah. don't think you should thank him for this. Mm. I think he's doing you a disservice <laughs> by by simply enabling this kind of behavior. But Paul variant covers. <laughs> oh, that's I'm sorry. You're talking about variant covers. That seems important. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, Mike. Paul's like, what about them? I mean, you know, I, I gave my example of you know Jaime Hernandez uh, variant covers. I mean, that's one thing I'll go of my way to find, and that's it's. I'm trying to understand like why that is a compulsion, and it's like this idea that you identify with a certain creator or you identify with a certain style, and it's just you want to. Uh, encourage it and you want to be a part of it. And I think, yeah. I mean, Tia, maybe this might speak to your obsession with Wicked and Divine and collecting it all. It's like, and it, it goes beyond just wanting to support your creators to a thing where you are compelled in a way to engage with the comic at a deeper level like that. I mean, you could also factor in my obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an actual thing, not just a like quirky description. Uh, and right, the fact right. that the first yeah. time that I tried to buy it and make a pull list with it, uh, the shop was like really dismissive of me, didn't actually order it for me, didn't set it up for me at all. And, oh. and it, and then by that time you couldn't get any of the variant covers. And I had like, and I specifically was like, I want to set this oh. up and I want, and I want all the variants and I've checked and you don't need to order a minimum to get the variants. They have different codes. Here's the codes. Like I literally gave them everything and the, they just didn't do it. <laughs> don't worry. I've done your they job. They just didn't do it. And then mm-hmm. I couldn't like, you couldn't get the variants anymore. And I was just yeah. like so mad. And it was the first time I had ever tried to even go into a comic shop and do that. And I just was, what a frustrating first start. I was so yeah. mad that I was like, I will take over everything you love and remake it in my own image. And <laughs> that also was, was part of the motivation that made me, you know, no big deal, but like literally um, in the span of a day fl- decide to fly across the country crash emerald city comic con and demand that the ceo of comicsology give me a job which um <laughs> you know turned out okay in the end i guess but uh, hmm. i guess that's another crazy thing i've done for comics i just was like look buddy i'll t- i'll tell you what i can and can't have <laughs> i will have all of them i love all of them yeah i was gonna say normally i'd I'd, I'd, I'd give to be a fly on the wall at that moment, but I'd probably actually yeah. still be too scared to uh, <laughs> be a party to that conversation. So. I'll have all of them, and I'm going to get a job in comics, and then I'm going to read all the comics for my job, and yeah. He's like, all right, that sounds good. There we go. Who knows, seems reasonable. Who knows yeah. where that guy is now? <laughs> oh, man. Well, Jeez. you know... 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this too, you know, this idea that something about, you know, variant covers, or like I said, m- me buying the complete run of something like Doom Patrol, or the uh, Keith Giffen Justice League, where it's like, yeah, I have a complete run of those series in like, really shitty condition, because I bought them for like 50 cents a piece, a quarter a piece from convention. So like, I have the floppies, they're not in bags, they're all yellowed, they're all dog-eared, but I like have the actual things as opposed to buying a digital collection or buying, you know, the nice, clean-looking trades that would probably have been easier to get. <laughs> but it's something about having the physical object, and I think it speaks to the way comics still retain that sort of the aura of the original object in a weird way. The so much pop culture is now available digitally. It's easily accessible. There's something about tracking down the actual physical object. You kind of feel like Indiana Jones when you're digging through old dollar bins and you'll find find something amazing. So I think the sort of physicality of the medium is what makes comic books unique and what makes it makes them easy to be obsessive about. Yeah, I think there's sort of a sense of an accomplishment or fulfillment that, uh, um, like, the internet and and eBay have sort of taken away from things, where whenever someone's like, oh, well, you know, you can just find it on eBay, it's like, well, what's what's the fun there? And I mean, that just opens up sort of the dark side of of comic books and the crazy things people do for comic books, where... um, yeah, if, if if you if you aren't able to put your foot down at a certain point, um, you can pay a lot of money. And the sad thing is, there are a lot of uh, you know distributors and, and 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 sellers out there who are more than aware that like people's collection fascination can reach a point where it gets really uh, fever pitch. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, Tia mm-hmm. Tia described her thing, but obviously, I think Tia's thing is still nowhere even remotely near what I've seen from you know some people's collections. I I, I don't want to wholeheartedly encourage it, Tia, but I think you're also not anywhere near the total dark side of that that spectrum where it's like you know, did you CGC rate this issue as a nine point eight? You know, from nineteen sixty four, and uh, it's yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think that's because I haven't got any illusions about what comics are worth in terms of like sure. resale value. Yeah. You, right, it, right. That just isn't yeah. a thing. Sorry, comic book guys. Yeah, no, he is right. We've said it a million yeah. times. I'll say it again. Don't don't think you literally have anything worth anything. Um, I mean, if you're not sure and it's Jack Kirby, you can send it to Paul and he'll <laughs> he'll look into it for you. Um, it yeah. might not get back anytime soon, but uh, um. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a weird sort of satis- I don't want to say satisfaction, but a weird thing that happens when you know being my age and when I was into comics was right when the speculation boom was happening. So that was what was driving the market was brand new number one issues, hologram covers, chromium covers, polybagged issues. So it's like, yeah, of course I had the issue of the death of Superman, Superman number 75 in the black polybag that you couldn't open because, you know, you're going to, it was going to pay for your college. And then (laughs) nowadays going, like I say, I spent a lot of time digging through dollar bins and there's a lot of copies of of Superman 75 in the, in the black polybag. So, um, um, I'm kind of glad that bubble burst, but it's manifested itself in some different ways. I think I, I'm of two minds on varying covers because of that. I mean, it feels like it's still a, akin to that level of uh, speculation. But Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a step in that direction, and it's sort of like an uncomfortable step where a lot of times I, I look at the industry and I look at publishers that have um, 
sort of embraced it in certain ways. I, I think I think Boom is pretty comfortable with variants. I think I think um, Valiant is pretty comfortable with variants. Um, but as it slowly, I say slowly, but it seems to be getting more popular again. And of course, like you said, it gets you a little bit nervous. It's like, is this the first step towards this again? Um, I like that DC has done the thing with Rebirth, where it's like, look, we have two covers. They're they're both printed in the exact same quantity. Just pick which one yeah. you want. We have the one, uh, for most books, it's we have the one done by a legacy artist. Um, and then we have the one that's sort of an alternative to the legacy artist, although I guess the legacy artist is the variant and the other one is the main. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I think that's great. I think variant covers in that sense... I think that's fantastic. Um, I think if you want to go on the dark side and talk about, what was it, the Jim Lee, Dark Knight 3, all pencils, one in, my goodness, was it yeah. one in 50,000? One in 10? It was at least one in 10,000 yeah. variant. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, I could, I, I, you know, I could maybe tangent off that to say actually buying uh, Dark Knight 3, The Master Race, is something my comic book's obsession has driven me to do against my will. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's stuff that I've bought that just like, I'm not sure why I'm buying this, so I just feel like I have to. Yeah. Uh, there's examples of that. That's actually the uh, DSM criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm just oh, no. going to throw there we that go. out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh is, is there anything about you know spending huge amounts of disposable income on things that you're just going to file away in plastic bags and then never touch again? Is I mean, that maybe fall on the spectrum. Only if it is against your will and adversely <laughs> affecting your life. Okay, well, I'm reaching a point where the number of long boxes might not physically fit in my apartment oh, anymore. Oh no, so we're reaching that point as well. I think that's well. just a um, l- lack of awareness of spatial relations <laughs> and and geometry, maybe different thing yeah i mean i suppose i could get rid of the nine thousand compact discs that i own i'm sorry oh my god CDs you do but what's going to happen if my hard drive crashes and i lose all of them i need to have yeah. the physical compact that did discs, happen all, to me you know, actually 900 of them. that did happen to me it was very traumatizing <laughs> so that's a real that's a real thing we deal with but we're i mean i think we're talking about you know the sort of collector mentality i'm wondering if there's anything else that we've done as comic book fans. I haven't gotten to the point where I'm doing wild dog cosplay at uh, at uh, conventions, <laughs> but we might be getting close to that. So do you guys guys have anything of along those lines that you've done? I think that definitely trying to cosplay Angelo was insane. I mean, it, it tur- I think it turned out okay, but it was insane because it's not just that you have to make the, the metal space bikini with the thigh high armor boots which (laughs) ps like there Mm -hmm. is no substance in reality that is can be uh can behave the way that thigh high armor boots behave in comics and that was just (laughs) the first of many problems that i had to troubleshoot with the materials i had available to me in the real world and then there was also you know the fact that like 80% of that costume is your bare body. And so I had to be on a pretty strict diet and workout regimen for like a year. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For, for what gain though? I'm not to, not to belittle that, but was it just, just to do it or in a connection with the character? Yeah. You know, it was at a time when I had really nothing else going on in my life. I had made the decision to leave my, 
PhD and not continue my dissertation, but I didn't really have something to go to to in that mm-hmm. that required the same level of intensity that like I have to direct towards something. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to do this thing because sure. <laughs> oh, I know cuz my brother wanted me to go to um Awesome Con with him in DC and I w- was and he was doing a really elaborate build of a rocket raccoon puppet and whoa okay. yeah wow <laughs> and i was Jeez. like i'll be i'll be one of the other guardians and this was um mm-hmm. you know obviously comics uh, guardians where angela hangs out with them i'm really sad she w- wasn't in the movie to be honest yeah so it's it seems like it's just a, a way of identifying with the character or just, a, you know, we use the term obsession, but I don't, I don't know if that's exactly correct for a lot of these examples we're giving. Uh, Nick, do you have any uh, cosplay stories you want to share or is that beyond, <laughs> oh, beyond man. your uh, scope? Yeah. Um, <laughs> cosplay. No, uh, comics have never compelled me to do, um, a costume. Uh, I admit I'm not that arts and craftsy, uh, so there's so there's that side of it, and then I think probably the real big struggle up front would be what character would I want to do, and I'm I'm certain that would take forever uh, to decide in its own right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I I totally get you know that people I mean that's great that people's fandom um, reaches a point where they wanna they wanna do something like that, and it's it's always great to see people who are into comics take that interest into other. Um, spheres of their life or other talents or other interests and um, you know see it manifest in that way uh, I, I think that that's fantastic um, I guess in a weird meta self-reflective way I think one of the crazier things I've done for comics is when uh, you know Mike Rappin was like I want to do a podcast and I'm like all right fine let's do this. <laughs> I honestly, that was like, I had, I, that was, that was crazy for me. Cause I, I, I wasn't really even listening to podcasts at that, at that point. I mean, I knew what it <laughs> was. I, probably Ricky Gervais's super popular one was the only one I'd really listened to. And, and, and he was like, let's do this. And I'm like, I've never done this before. I don't, I don't have the equipment. I don't know how any of the setup stuff works or, you know, calibrating microphones or any of that or, uh, any of that stuff. Um, but it was still, uh, it was really great to take, you know, again, to take an interest and sort of, um, you know, morph it into, into some of my interests and, you know, about, you know, writing and, and research and, and sort of developing a, a script or a program or things like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, so I think in some ways, you know, for a lot of us, this, uh, this podcast has been a real crazy um, step outside of some of our comfort zones uh, to to sort of have comics manifest in a different um, way of our lives. So, um, yeah, there you go, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're welcome. Yeah, I think yeah that, that that's interesting. So just thinking about you know my. You know, as I've talked about my sort of return to comics, being a someone that read comics a lot as a teenager, and then after. Uh, high school, be- becoming obsessive about music, which is why I have you know 900 CDs and several hundred uh, vinyl records, which I have no room for. But still, that <laughs> became my obsession for a while. Like and you have then, two uh, square feet to yourself at this point. Like about I have enough room to you know 
move around and I can uh, you know do some push-ups occasionally. Yeah. But that's about it. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, so that I've always had that sort of that compulsion to kind of be a collector in a weird way. But on a deeper level, you know, when I got back into reading comics, I was you know in grad in grad school and I for some reason made these connections with what we were studying. I was in a philosophy program. Yeah. Uh, getting my master's degree. And I made these connections between comics and what I was studying in a way I never made before. And it really reinvigorated not only my uh, love of comic books, where I'm doing this podcast and involved in it again, but also made me appreciate my studies in a deeper way. I think I wrote better and I did better research because I was something I was passionate about. So it turned into not just... I like comics. It turned into I'm writing and researching about comics and being published about comics in a deeper level than I ever thought I would. So that's maybe a positive obsession, a positive spin out of my obsession with comics as opposed to, you know, just spending money on things I don't need. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately it's definitely been a net gain in my life because, you know, I'm not the kind of person who likes crowds or people or... um, being um, kind of, I don't know, out there. And <laughs> because I have this thing that I want to talk about, it's really pushed me off the internet and into the real world to go to conventions <laughs> and to make comic book friends. And, you know, <laughs> I think it's been a pretty positive experience overall. I, I, I have to laugh at the stereotype of of the comic book nerd in their basement, like all by themselves. That has been not my experience in the slightest. In fact, mm-hmm. it's been quite the opposite. It has brought me out of my shell a lot more. It has made me care about things more. I don't know. It it it's like a low stakes thing that you can care about, which is nice when you have you know a lot of heavy things going on around you in in life like politically or personally or whatever Mm -hmm. so the the negative stereotype of being obsessed with comics i think is completely unfair yeah i I think you're exactly right and we might be, you know, laughing about these comic book obsessions and sort of saying like comic books essentially are somewhat frivolous, but yeah, we're compelled to collect them. But I think you made an interesting point there too. It's like being involved in comics and being involved in the comic book community is a wonderful way of putting your energy into something positive. You know, like you said, there's it's a way of escaping in a weird way. It's so easy to get weighed down by political or cultural, you know, things having something you can escape into and find other people to talk about it with, you cannot overstate the importance of those things. So, I mean, I'm glad comics have kind of done that for for us here on the show. Thanks for listening to the I Read Comic Books podcast. This episode was produced by me, Mike Rappin, with editing by Sander Riggs. Special thanks this week to Tia Vasiliou, Paul Jaisley, and Nick White. The music in this episode is brought to you by our favorite band in the universe, Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy the show, tell someone about it. Rate us online. Write to us. Definitely write to us. 
Each person you tell about the show and each rating you give us lends a little more exposure to the show and helps us grow. It's also a great way for us to get feedback about the program we create each week for you. Or if you're just looking to say hi, you can email us at ircb at destroythesive.org. And if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club that we feature here on the show, and we have regular threads about what comics we've been reading. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode at our subreddit, ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. And the entire podcast team is on Twitter. You can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back issue bin of episodes and our weekly pull list posting, is to visit our website, ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us here at the podcast, thank you for listening. That that wild dog guy is in Cave Carson. Now I need to read this book. Oh my goodness. I love <laughs> shitty vigilante characters where it's like, why are you letting this book get out to like children? Where it's like, hey kids, got a hockey mask in your basement? Got an Uzi somewhere around the house? Although I suppose that one I hope is more of a deterrent for some people. Right. <laughs> It, uh, it it is funny to be reading these books. You too uh, can prowl the streets. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I, it has Jesus. the approved by the Comics Code Authority thing right on the cover, uh-huh. and then the whole issue is just Wild Dog blowing away terrorists with an Uzi, <laughs> and then blo- so like blowing dumb. up a yacht that they're all on. Too, it's 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 awesome. <laughs> it's one, <laughs> wonderful. Whenever I see him, I can't help but think of Casey Jones. I mean, Casey Jones does not own. Um, you know, appropriating hockey gear for something other than hockey. <laughs> Obviously, Jason. You know, Jason made that pretty clear. But uh, um, yeah. But all I can think of is would, Casey yeah. Jones. It's it's so funny because I mean I've seen that character. I just assumed it was shitty, but I was just so surprised at how good that miniseries was. And it actually makes me want to watch Arrow to see what he's like on the show. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now, is he full? Oh, that's right. You said he's not. He's not full hockey gear. It's just the just the mask, and then he wears a, a hockey jersey, right? Yeah, it's like a, or like a football jersey because it turns out that the four guys that Wild Dog might be all played on the same college football team. Oh, so they all know each other. So, it's, but it's like the logo for the team was the Mad Dog. So it's like a red cartoon dog that's laughing okay. on the front of the jersey, and then yeah, like cargo camo pants so huh. it's like the weirdest looking costume oh man <laughs> you know i mean i'm sure someone else has done that story before but i really like that idea that you don't know the person's real, real identity and you're trying to figure it mm-hmm. out and no one else knows and uh i don't know i don't know if i've read a book recently that's been that's been tempted to do other thing like other anything other than this is his true identity but no one else knows and don't tell anyone or whatever so yeah, yeah. Hopefully he does a better job than Bruce Wayne, where it's like every other day he's telling someone, you know. <laughs> Don't yeah. tell anyone. How exclusive of a club is this? Maybe like 80 people know. Okay, that's not that good. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ben Franklin had something yeah. to say about two, you know, two people keeping a secret, Bruce. You might want to go revisit that. Well, at least, I mean, is, is that worse than um, the worst kept secret in comics that Matt Murdock is Daredevil? <laughs> To the point where he had to, you he once wore a t-shirt totally, that said "I'm not Daredevil." <laughs> you're absolutely right. Batman is in a much better position than Matt Murdock. Um, 
didn't the Spider-Man have to walk that back at some point too? Didn't they have to really do some convoluted, was convoluted like, mess to walk back, revealing him? I think yeah, I think he unmasked during Civil War, the original Civil War, uh, yeah. the comic series, not the not the actual event. But um, Ken Burns, he he, I think he made some deal with the whatever Marvel version of the devil it was. Mephistocles or whatever, or sure, there's like a couple different versions of that character, but they basically erased everyone's memory that he had taken his mask off during Civil War. I, I didn't read it, but it's like right before I started reading comics again, so I was kind of getting the the after effects of that whole storyline when I was reading Spider Man. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm glad someone knows because I thought I I thought I remembered that being the case. Peter Parker dealing dealing with the devil. Um, 